Does the Bible support same-sex marriage? This is a uh, very volatile question, and it's one that I address in a forthcoming book titled, Does the Bible Support Same-Sex Marriage? 21 Conversations from a Historically Christian View. What I want to do in this podcast episode is uh, give a quick overview of the book, explain why I wrote it, talk about the first two foundational chapters of the book. And then in the next episode, uh, we're going to get into some of the specific arguments for same-sex marriage and uh, offer a, a response to some of the top ones that I've received. Okay, so why did I write this book? I have been, as many of you know, engaging the LGBTQ conversation for uh, about a decade now. I've I've written a few books on the topic and uh, done a lot of speaking at churches and conferences and different uh, venues um, on the topic. And naturally, whenever I speak, uh, a lot of questions come up. And one of the things that I absolutely love, and I, I almost require it when I go speak places, I love the the Q&A times, uh, question and answer, whereas I prefer Q&R, question and response. I can't promise you that I'm going to give kind of some black and white answer to all the questions that will answer them perfectly, but I will respond to people's questions. And in almost every venue that I speak at, I always say, I would, you know, uh, one of the things I, I really want to see after my talk is I want to have Q and A. So I want to hear what people are, are, I want to hear what people are hearing. I want to hear the pushbacks. I want to respond to those pushbacks. I want to offer clarifications and I want to learn from hard questions that maybe I don't have an answer to at that, at that moment. So over the last decade or so, I've sort of compiled a mental list of all of the kind of top arguments for same-sex marriage. So when I go, I give a talk, I typically lay out what I think is a historically Christian view of marriage. And then oftentimes I'll focus more on kind of past, uh, you know, pastoral questions related to same-sex sexuality or uh, gender dysphoria or trans identities in the church. Again, naturally, many questions arise that uh, that are offered in response to something I said or something maybe I've written about in the past. And so this book is kind of a compilation of my response to the top 21 uh, arguments for same-sex marriage, a theological, biblical, and even relational arguments that often come up. So that's why I wrote the book. People ask me, you know, how is this book different than your previous book, People to be Loved? I, you know, there is there is some overlap. I would say this book is kind of a follow-up to People to be Loved. You know, uh, people, people to be Loved is more of a holistic how would I describe people? It's kind of like a, uh, it's, it's my journey into the conversation, both my theological journey and my, uh, relational journey. And so it weaves together stories and, and, uh, kind of how I've looked, how I've read, you know, the Bible on the topic. And, um, and I do respond to some of the pushbacks at that time, but it doesn't offer kind of a comprehensive, like, you know, response to all of the affirming pushbacks. So um, this book, Does the Bible Support Same-Sex Marriage, is, is sort of a follow-up. It's, it's kind of like all the questions, all the dust that got kicked up with pe- people to be loved. Um, this book kind of follows up and responds to uh, some of that dust, if you will. Um, if, but it does focus primarily on the theological, biblical, and relational arguments that are offered for same-sex marriage. I do focus specifically on sexuality. Um, I don't deal with uh, gender, gender identities, uh, the transgender conversation in this new book. So I do uh, talk about LGB people. Um, I don't address uh, trans people. I do use the acronym maybe on a few occasions, LGBTQ. Um, 
when I am actually talking about all LGBTQ type uh, identities, but I do want to, fo- I do focus specifically on questions around same-sex marriage and same-sex sexuality uh, in this, in this new book. So here's how the book is laid out. The first chapter, I call it foundation one. I talk about how we should even go about having a fruitful conversation. And I, I included this chapter first for a reason. I really think that this shapes the tone of the entire book. And, and in fact, I mean, I, I honestly was, Maybe most excited about this chapter because this is something that I've I've been thinking through for years, but I've never really worked out in my own writing. Um, I've read a lot of books on 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 this, um, and I'll go through the chapter in, in a few minutes. But um, I I really wanted to begin the book by talking about you know how it is we should even go about having these conversations because I think one of the biggest problems in this topic slash debate slash conversation is that people, I think, begin on the wrong foot. Um, They think if they can just pound somebody with intellectual arguments, they will, you know, uh, force them to believe the right thing, meaning the thing that they believe, you know. And so I I see this all the time, especially social media has often exacerbated that kind of posture. And it seems like things are getting more feisty and polarized. And I just find this to be utterly unhelpful for the conversation and even unhelpful if you're, if part of your own motivation wherever you're coming from, if part of your motivation is I want to convince this other person to believe like I do. And here I'm speaking, whether you're coming from a more traditional perspective or a more progressive perspective, if that's your goal, (laughs) then I think this chapter will be helpful for you. Because I think uh, oftentimes when people make that their sole goal, I need this person to agree with what I believe. Um, I think they go about that kind of conversation in a wrong way, at least in a way that's very ineffective. So I, that's the first chapter. I call it foundation one, how to have a fruitful conversation. The second chapter I call it foundation two is it's titled the historically Christian view of marriage here. Here I take, it's probably the longest chapter. It is the longest chapter in the book. I spend several pages, you know, laying out what is to the best of my understanding, what is the historically Christian view of marriage as it pertains to same sex, the possibility of same sex marriage, um, and I offer five reasons why I believe that uh, the the best reading of scripture is that marriage is between one man and one woman. So that I lay out really clearly, kind of what it is, affirming arguments, meaning arguments that affirm same sex marriage. Like, what is the position they're actually arguing against? And this is another problem I've seen in the conversation. I think sometimes people don't really have a really clear or robust understanding of what the historically Christian view of marriage even is. And then sometimes people find themselves trying to defend so-called traditional marriage or, you know, historically Christian view of marriage against these arguments when they don't even have a great understanding of what that, what view it is they're even defending or some assumptions that go into that view. So that's the second chapter. I really want to lay out clearly and thoroughly, although, you know, I have to keep it somewhat concise. You know, what is the historically Christian view of marriage? Okay. And then I spend uh, the next 21 chapters, or I call them conversations, uh, interacting with and responding to the, what I have found to be the top 21 arguments that are made to affirm same-sex marriage. And, and the chapters are, are relatively short. One, one of the things I wanted this book to be is very accessible and readable. Um, some of the arguments are, are very complex, very scholarly, um, and I kind of point out which ones are going to be the heaviest, you know, up front. Uh, some of them are pretty, you know, uh, mainstream or, or, or like, you know, 
well-known or familiar, kind of easy to understand, but some of them are quite complex. But my overall goal is I, I wanted a book that's relatively short, accessible, where you don't have to comb through some, you know, 300-word uh, academic book to find, you know, a response to an argument your friend just offered you. So so that's what the book is all about. Um, uh, let's jump into this first foundation. So what I want to do is I just want to sum up kind of what I'm trying to say in each of these chapters. Um, so yeah, the first foundation, how to have a fruitful conversation. Here I'm I'm primarily drawing on um, fairly recent psychologists like uh, Jonathan Haidt, uh, Adam Grant, uh, who's oh uh, Daniel Kahneman, and there, there's several others. Uh, I would say when I say recent, I mean in the last like 10, 15 years that have been written that talk about the nature of belief or even uh, in the case of Adam Grant, you know, how do people change their mind? What does that psychological process look like? And all of these writers that I'm drawing on are all secular writers. They're not talking about same-sex sexuality. They're not talking about Christianity or faith or anything, but there's so many riches in these resources that are so helpful. I found in, in any kind of like pastoral ministry or any kind of, conversation around contentious issues. So, so this chapter would really apply to you know, debating politics over Thanksgiving meal, goodness, um, debating issues surrounding economics or climate change or, or whatever, you know, um, it'd pick your contentious issue. And I think uh, most humans go about dialoguing around those contentious issues very poorly. And uh, so what I, what I try to do in this opening chapter is, is, summarize kind of some of the things I've learned about the nature of belief from some of these uh, psychologists. Yeah, Jonathan Haidt is, I mean, most of you probably know who he is. I talk about him pretty much in almost every podcast. Uh, his book, The Righteous Mind, I've considered maybe one of the top five most important pastoral books I've ever read written by a Jewish atheist. <laughs> so he's not talking about, he's not talking about pastoral ministry. Okay. But the implications of this book are so important for pastoral, pastoral ministry or any kind of Christian leadership or any kind of leadership, just understanding. Well, the subtitle of the book is why good people disagree on politics and religion, understanding why somebody might hold passionately to a viewpoint you find utterly terrible or despicable or harmful or whatever. I think understanding why they might hold to that belief is so important if you're trying to help them to reconsider uh, that belief. So one of the illustrations that Haidt gives in that book, and, and, and I think he actually mentioned this in, in a previous work of his, is the elephant and the rider. And, uh, you know, you picture, you know, a small little human being on top of this huge elephant. And that's the illustration Haidt gives to illustrate the point that the elephant represents our, what he calls our intuition, maybe just think our, our kind of gut feelings, our, maybe you can even, you know, our emotional kind of the emotional side of our brain. And the rider represents kind of our prefrontal cortex, our rational reasoning, our intellectual side, the, the side that builds rational analytical arguments. Now, his whole point of that is um, that elephant's going to go where it wants to go. Your intuition is going to believe what it wants to believe. And unfortunately, you might think, um, our rational thinking, that the, the, the part of the brain that kind of constructs logical arguments, represents kind of a small 
portion of that puzzle, you know, maybe 10% of our approach to various issues. It represents a small little rider at the top of the elephant who's trying to kind of steer it in a certain direction. But that elephant, if it sees something that it wants to go after, it's it's really going to go after that. So I think understanding that is so important. And I think it's utterly true. And, and many other psychologists have, you know, without using that exact illustration, have, have, have pointed this out. I don't think it's really debated much anymore. And it should help us to understand that if somebody is holding on to a viewpoint and it's pretty passionate, for instance, let's just stir the pot here a little bit. Um, If somebody over your next Thanksgiving meal is saying why Christians should vote for Donald Trump or Christians should vote for Joe Biden or whoever, you know, that if you just try to pound them with logical, rational arguments for why they shouldn't, why they're wrong, that is going to have very little effect on challenging their thinking. You need to appeal to their elephant. You need to understand their intuition, why, so, some more holistic reasons why they might hold to certain viewpoints. It's not that they simply, you know, very you know, calmly and coolly, you know, weighed all the logical arguments for and against this candidate or that candidate and says, okay, based on adding up all the facts, this candidate has more factual reasons to vote for them than this other candidate. Like, it's not that, it doesn't work that way. There's so many other uh, things that go into uh, why somebody believes what they do. It goes for all of us, goes for me, goes for you. So that if we're going to have a profitable conversation, I think we need to understand the more holistic reasons why somebody might hold to a certain viewpoint. He even, um, is it Jonathan Haidt or is it, uh, this might have been, no, I think it was either uh, Adam Grant or Haidt. No, this is, yeah, Haidt compares um, our prefrontal cortex, I believe, to like a press secretary, okay? And and the, our intuitions, our elephant is you know the president of our beliefs. Well, the press secretary's gonna do whatever it takes to defend the viewpoint of the president, right? You never seen a pres- the press secretary, you know, receive a hard question from a journalist in the room and say, you know what, that's a good point. Yeah, I think you're probably right there. Yeah, our president is really out to lunch. He's probably wrong. You know, that just doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. Um, so what his illustration is that the way belief works, our prefrontal cortex, our rational reasoning is constantly kind of creating or finding reasons to justify a previously held committed belief. If you try to convince the press secretary of something, it's just it's not, not going to be that profitable rather than trying to maybe convince the president to believe something. You, you, you convince the president and then the press secretary will follow. You convince the intuition and the rational reasoning will follow. Yeah, so I draw on another great book, uh, other than Height's book, is uh, Adam Grant's book called Think Again. And this this book is all about on how how and why people change their beliefs. It's a fascinating book, brilliant book. Uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, is a different kind of book, but it touches on some of the similar things. He's a Nobel uh, Prize winner. But it just it does kind of talk about the nature of belief as well. A much larger book, much harder to read, but but very worth it. Adam Grant's book is very easy to read, shorter. Uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, I would say, is, is in between those two books. So, so here's what I say uh, early on in this first chapter. You know, my intention in this book is not to arm you with arguments so you can go pummel someone with your viewpoint and destroy theirs in the process. While I do give intellectual responses to intellectual arguments, I'm also wanting to embody a kind of posture that I think is most conducive for uh, having a fruitful conversation. So with that in mind, here are a few principles that I lay down in this first chapter. Number one, 
be willing to rethink your point of view. Uh, you're like, mm, really? Is this okay? I Look, super difficult. I'm going to be the first one to say this is a, a daily struggle for anybody. But I think it's incredibly important. Uh, and for this reason, if you're not willing to rethink your viewpoint, what in the world makes you think that the other person is going to be willing to rethink their viewpoint? So again, if you're in a conversation where you feel like, I want this person to consider what I'm trying to say, if you want them to actually consider the veracity of what you're or the viewpoint you're offering, then you need to be willing to rethink yours if you're asking them to rethink theirs. But to me, it's just, I mean, once you think about it, it's kind of like, uh, kind of sounds like a no-brainer. Um, so, uh, yeah, the second point, and some of these are kind of, these these points, these principles overlap a bit. Uh, secondly, be a genuinely curious person. We should be genuinely curious about the other person and their view, viewpoint if we expect them to be curious about ours. Now, to qualify, being curious doesn't mean they are correct, doesn't mean that uh, they even have a logical, coherent argument for their viewpoint. It just means that you, we all should demonstrate genuine curiosity in the other person as a person, the other, why the other person holds to this viewpoint, and um, the viewpoint itself. We should be genuinely curious to know what that is. Why would they hold this? And not why would you hold this viewpoint, but why, why do you hold this viewpoint? Like show genuine curiosity. If anything, if anything, it can be incredibly disarming. And again, if you're if deep down, you're like, oh, I still want them to believe me. Okay. I, I, I want people to believe me because I think my viewpoints are true. Otherwise, I wouldn't hold them. Okay. That's, we all should be honest with that. Um, but if we want somebody to actually consider our viewpoints, we should be curious about theirs. And perhaps that curiosity can be contagious um, or at least influential. That if you demonstrate curiosity in their viewpoint, yes, even who they're, they want you to vote for, even if you find that candidate to be utterly despicable and horrible. Uh, if you demonstrate curiosity and why they hold to that viewpoint, there's a better chance that they will cultivate curiosity toward your viewpoint. Uh, thirdly, um, be a good listener. Be a good, a genuine listener. Okay, so Adam Grant says, uh, when we try to convince people to think again, our first instinct is usually to start talking. Here's 15 reasons why you should believe. Okay, that that's our impulse. Yet the most effective way, this is still Adam Grant, yet the most effective way to help others open their minds is often to listen. I, I've, I've known this to be true. I found this to be true anecdotally over the years. Often when I speak on this topic, I mean, I, I often talk about the power of listening. I mean, it really does have a very powerful effect on, um, on having more profitable conversations around polarizing issues. Um, and it's actually not that hard to do. For me, I find giving profound advice, that's hard to do. That takes a ton of wisdom and experience and, and, and intelligence and, and all these things that it doesn't come easy. But simply listening, anybody can do that. My dog does that. My dog listens to me. Doesn't obey me half the time, but he listens. You know, he looks at me, especially if I have a stick of pepperoni in my hands. Yeah. So I found this to be so true that that listening is disarming. Listening shows that you're uh, being genuine. Listening shows that you're actually trying to understand before you're trying to refute. And that's a saying I have in the book. You know, understand before you refute. If you try to refute before you actually understand what the other person's trying to say, it's going to have a um, 
It's going to have a negative effect on, on the conversation. So be a good listener. Number four, uh, ask good, honest questions, not interrogating questions, not cornering questions. The second someone feels threatened or defensive, like you're backing them into some kind of rhetorical corner just to win an argument, then the, the profitable conversation is done. And, and the hope of them actually considering your viewpoint is now um, that door has been closed because you've backed them into a corner and now they feel defensive and nobody, including you, um, likes to feel that way. So uh, what I say in the book, oh, so, so what, one of the things that Adam Grant talks about, I don't, I don't know if he's, I don't think he's coined this, but he's the first one I, I he's the first person I got it from, but now I've, I've seen other people use this, but instead of uh, trying to straw man another person's argument, we all know what that is, right? Like you kind of like represent the worst, you kind of present the argument you're trying to counter and you, you know, you present that argument in kind of the worst possible light. You create this man made a straw and then you push over the straw man. You're like, see, I destroyed your argument. Like, well, you created the worst version of my argument. You haven't actually tried to understand what the argument is. So what Adam Grant says, instead of straw manning the other person's point of view, try steel manning the other person's point of view. And I apologize for the gender-specific language. Typically, I like to use the term person or persons or people instead of man or woman. Okay, my attempt at, you know, um, being politically correct. But in this, in this, um, in this case, I think straw man is kind of still the phrase. So I don't mean straw male. Okay, I just mean straw man in terms of mankind. Okay, anyway, instead of straw manning, we should steel man the other person's argument. Try to get inside the argument try to be, almost get so close to where you're actually almost convincing yourself of the argument. Represent the other argument in the best possible light. And then can you disagree? Can you still show why that argument still is not the superior argument? If you can do that, um, you're going to have a much better chance at helping the person consider your viewpoint. But if all you do is straw man the other argument, it's going to have a reverse effect. They're going to be, uh, they're not going to trust what you have to say. Um, so when you uh, go and go to make your argument, people are gonna be like, wait a minute, you, you don't, I don't sense a good faith conversation. I don't think you're actually trying to search for the truth here. You're just trying to represent my view in the worst possible light. So what makes me think I'm going to trust you to represent your view? Well, so most people, this is uh, a quote from Adam Grant. Uh, most people immediately start with a straw man poking holes in the weakest version of the other side's case. Instead of this, take a steel man approach where you try your best to understand and accurately represent the strongest part of their argument and asking people questions can motivate them to rethink their conclusions. So yeah, so all that to say, ask good, honest questions so that you can best understand and represent the other person's argument. Uh, fifth, find some point of agreement. Find some point of agreement. Uh, and this, this, Okay, so these seven points that I'm going to give you, there's there's seven total. Uh, they're getting they're going to get progressively challenging here. Okay, <laughs> so this this one's starting to get like, well, I don't know if you know this is really hard to do. Well, yes, it's incredibly hard to do if you feel like you have the correct viewpoint and the other person is wrong. It it could feel okay, so it could feel weak. It could feel like you're don't actually have a strong case if you find some point of agreement. So. It does kind of go a, it is, it feels a little counterintuitive. Um, but again, it's, I mean, I was, it's been psychologically proven. Anecdotally, I found it to be very true in the conversations I've had across differences that when you find something you could agree with and what the other person's saying, it lets their guard down. 
It um, shows that you're after the truth, not just after winning an argument. It shows that the, you're engaging in a good faith conversation, that you're willing to, you're willing to change your view or correct your view or augment your view if uh, your view is faced with superior truth and errors in your view are pointed out. So you can, you can, and here's the thing, you can find points of agreement. It doesn't mean you agree with their viewpoint. It doesn't even agree, mean you agree with the argument as a whole. But, and as I show this throughout the book, you know, there are many things in aspects of affirming arguments. And I'm like, oh, that's a good point. I agree with that. That's a great point. Actually, this point is forced me to go back and change something about my viewpoint. Um, you can do that without buying into the entire argument that you feel is wrong or you're trying to disagree with. And this is something that I do throughout the book. And I mean, I'll jump ahead here. In the 21 responses I give to the 21 affirming arguments I interact with, I, I have, there's, th there's three sections. I'll come back to this in the, in the next episode too, but there's three sections in those short chapters. Uh, number one, I summarize their argument. Number two, I, I find points of agreement. So in every single argument that I interact with, I try to find something that I'm like, oh, here's, here's a point that I agree with, with this argument. And in some, there's, in some cases, there's lots of points of agreements. In other, in other cases, there's, there's maybe fewer, but I, I still want to work. Like, is there something here that I, that I can find value in? Find points of agreement. Number six, uh, understand the power of belonging. And this has to do with what, uh, Jonathan Haidt calls our, our hive switch or our hive mind as in, you know, beehives, bees interacting with each other in a beehive. We are all tribalistic. We are all groupish people. We have um, communities that we belong to that shape our beliefs, whether we like to admit it or not. And I think it's important to understand that if you were to actually convince somebody that your viewpoint is more correct than theirs, what would that do to their community? And this goes to both sides of this theological disagreement. And by, and by the way, I, I, all these points that I'm talking about, this would equally apply to whether you're coming from a progressive or affirming perspective or coming from a conservative traditional perspective, whatever term you like to use to describe your perspective. Um, so for instance, if you're say a, um, an affirming uh, gay Christian and you're trying to convince your conservative parents, you know, to change their viewpoint, you do have to ask the question like, if they did actually come out as affirming, what would that do to their community? Would they have to change churches? Would they have to kind of go in the closet in the, in the church they're at? Uh, what would that do to their friends, their family, their relationships? Like, um, and, and again, if if the change is toward the truth, then yeah, they should be able to make those sacrifices. We should, that's something we should all consider. But at least have a more holistic understanding of what changing this individual person's mind would entail for their life. Um, and this is just, I think, just good to be aware of um, as we approach the conversation. We're not simply trying to change the intellectual viewpoint of an individual. In many cases, especially in this conversation, what we are actually asking is many times a change in community. That's a, that's a, that's a hard sell. And I even give an illustration here, uh, this time towards you know a, a, a conservative Christian parent trying to convince their lesbian daughter that uh, the affirming viewpoint is incorrect. And I, you know, I I ask a bunch of questions like, okay, well, what would, if they actually did believe you, what would that entail? Would they have to leave their community? Would they not be welcome in their community anymore? Would they be welcome in your community? Whatever church you belong to and your lesbian daughter say all of a sudden changes her viewpoint, um, how would she be treated at your community? What kind of, would she have the same robust, rich, vibrant, committed community in your environment than they did in the environment that you're basically asking them to leave? 
Put bluntly, is your church, does your church Christian conservative environment demonstrate as robust sense of community that maybe their LGBTQ community is demonstrating? And, and here, well, that's a whole, a whole other conversation. I think sometimes the church can maybe learn uh, some things from the LGBTQ community. Okay, uh, last point. Don't, and this is really counterintuitive, but I, again, this is one of those things like I've learned anecdotally over the years. It was so good to see, um, especially Adam Grant point this out. Don't be overly confident. Okay. Um, Adam Grant says, communicating your beliefs with some uncertainty signals confident humility, invites curiosity, and leads to a more nuanced discussion. I feel like this is so true. Given that our beliefs are often held largely by intuition, not just us examining the, you know, all the intellectual arguments and weighing it like a scientist, you know, weighing the two beakers with the chemicals. That's a terrible illustration. doesn't make sense. But, you know, like we, we're not just cool, rational creatures just weighing the facts. Like that's just not how belief works as much as we like to think it is. So given the fact that we have a lot of intuition that goes into why we believe what we believe, um, I think it's important, extra important to have a lot of humility in our beliefs to demonstrate even uncertainty. Instead of saying, you know, you know, this is truth and you're wrong and I'm right. Say, you know, according to what I've researched so far, here is the best reading of scripture, you know, but, but at least give the impression. Well, not just giving the impression to them, but to yourself, like you should cultivate the kind of posture to where, but if I come across certain things that would correct my viewpoint, augment it, maybe change it. Um, I would be willing willing to do that because I am committed to embracing the truth, not simply defending my viewpoint at all costs. So, um, and I, I can't say how important this is for those of you out there who are my age or older. <laughs> uh, I'm 47, so I'm a Gen Xer. So let, let me just speak to you Gen Xers and boomers. And who's older than boomers? traditionalists or elders or whatever they just call them. Um, this, this comes very, this is not, this is very counterintuitive for us because, you know, we grew up with, um, you know, MacArthur and Driscoll and Piper and people that just, you know, the, the, the louder they proclaim the truth, the more it felt convincing to us. I loved, I loved hard hitting sermons that I remember Bible college, we'd walk out of chapel and say, Oh man, that dude ripped me a new one. That was so good. And we're like so prone. You know, maybe it's because we have daddy issues or whatever. But I mean, we were so prone to like the the louder they yell, the more we were convinced of of you know that what they were saying is correct. That doesn't work on Gen Z and younger millennials. So for those of us who are again Gen Xers, maybe boomers, and we're having these conversations with people in the Gen Z world or young millennials, our kids or their kids or whatever, we have to really consider that the way they receive or consider uh, a viewpoint is different than the way we did. Um, humility, um, admitting some doubt, uh, admitting that you don't have it all figured out, um, uh, not being overly confident in your viewpoint. Uh, that actually creates a context where your viewpoint is more likely to be considered than less likely. And again, I'm, I, I, 
I live in both worlds. I, I've got Gen Z kids. I, I do a lot of work with younger millennials and Gen Z. And I also, I am a Gen Xer and I think like a boomer half the time. And so I, I, I get, I get kind of the way I receive truth and what sounds convincing to me, but then I listen to the younger generation, especially, and these are almost like, it's almost like cross-cultural ministry. So if you're my age or older and you feel like you're, you're being weak need or, or, you know, soft on sin, if you demonstrate any kind of uncertainty or not, you're, or you're not being overly confident, I just please, um, yeah, at least consider <laughs> that sometimes that overconfidence can work against your viewpoint actually being considered. This episode is sponsored by Faithful Counseling. Okay, so almost every single healthy person I know has been to counseling or seen a therapist. We all need to talk to someone and Faithful Counseling can help. Faithful Counseling offers online professional mental health therapy from a biblical perspective. You can uh, log into your account anytime, send a message to your counselor and schedule a weekly uh, video or even a phone session if you don't want to be on camera. And one of the things I love about Faithful Counseling is that uh, they allow you to change counselors free of charge until you find the right fit for you. I recently read some of the reviews uh, of Faithful Counseling and I was super impressed with what people were saying. Uh, for instance, one reviewer said, I can't say enough about Sharon, her counselor. Uh, she is such a patient and meaningful listener. She has helped me navigate some very difficult times in my life. I'm so grateful for her compassionate work through treatment. So continue growing into the best version of yourself. Visit faithfulcounseling.com forward slash T-I-T-R and get the professional faith-based counseling that you deserve. Uh, right now, they've got a special offer for our listeners. Uh, you can get 10% off your first month at faithfulcounseling.com forward slash T-I-T-R. Thanks again to Faithful Counseling for sponsoring this episode. Does the Bible support same-sex marriage? That's a question that many people are wrestling with today. And there's, you know, people who hold passionately to different answers to this question. Now, most dialogues about same-sex marriage, they end with divisiveness and confusion instead of clarity and a better understanding of the other person's position and even a better understanding of your own position. This is why I wrote a book titled, Does the Bible Support Same-Sex Marriage? 21 Conversations from a Historically Christian Perspective, which comes out uh, in August uh, this summer. So what I do in this book is I first talk about how Christians should even go about having, you know, a profitable conversation about contentious issues. I really want us to cultivate a better posture in how we even go about defending our points of view or trying to refute others. I then lay out a biblical theological case for the historically Christian view of marriage. And then for the rest of the book, I take what I see as the top 21 arguments for same-sex marriage, and I respond to each one in a way that's both thoughtful and thorough. Some of these arguments are, you know, since some people are born gay, then God must allow for same-sex marriage. Or, you know, the word homosexual was only recently added to the Bible. Or the traditional view of marriage is harmful to gay and lesbian people. And, and many other arguments that I wrestle with in this book, Does the Bible Support Same-Sex Marriage? So if you're looking for a theologically precise and nuanced approach to these arguments, one that doesn't, you know, straw man the other view to make it look bad, then I would encourage you to please check out my book, Does the Bible Support Same-Sex Marriage? You can order it now on Amazon or wherever books are sold. So one of the pushbacks I might get from all this is that this is just secular cycle babble. You know, real Christians need to be bold and courageous. We should just preach the truth with conviction. And, you know, people are offended. Oh, well, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Um, this just seems like you're trying to soften the truth and make it more palatable. So just so to be clear, that is not at all what I'm trying to do. Um, soften the truth and make it more palatable, being seeker sensitive or, you know, uh, bait and switch. None of that is what 
I'm doing. I am simply trying to understand the nature of belief so that we can have a more profitable conversation. And my ultimate goal is I want people to receive the truth. And I think taking, um, uh, learning lessons from some of these psychological truths can actually help people consider the actual truth. So my ultimate motivation is because I want, in a sense, it's it's almost like I, I, I am being even more bold and courageous by being sensitive to the way belief actually works. Plus, this isn't just, okay, so some of you are like, well, I keep drawing on all these psychologists. Well, we see that we see writers in the New Testament, especially the Apostle Paul, take advantage of the rhetorical devices available to him in his day. Okay, he didn't have access to Adam Grant, Jonathan Haidt, and others. Um, I, I, I don't want to say that, you know, the New Testament does everything I'm saying to do, but we do see Paul, especially in books like Philemon or letters like Philemon. Philemon's notorious for Paul approaching Philemon, trying to convince Philemon of a certain viewpoint, but he takes a very different approach than he does in, for instance, um, maybe uh, Galatians. Uh, Galatians uses a different approach. Uh, First and second Corinthians, Paul taps into some rhetorical devices of the first century. Uh, Again, not to tiptoe around the truth, but to to help the Corinthians to consider the truth. So, yeah, again, I, I think that the New Testament gives us biblical license to consider certain rhetorical devices to help people come to a, uh, create the right context for somebody to actually consider the truth. And G- Jesus did the same thing with asking all his questions and getting people to think rather than just simply declaring the truth and demanding that people embrace it. Okay, so let's, uh, I want to briefly survey the second foundation. This is uh, foundation number two in the book. It's called the the historically Christian view of marriage. So, um, again, I think this is super important. Rather than just simply jumping into all the affirming arguments, I want to lay out what is what is the historically Christian viewpoint that I'm in a sense that I that I believe and that I am working from. Yeah, I lay I lay out five kind of components or or maybe reasons why I hold to the historically Christian viewpoint so that the rest of the book is me wrestling with responses to that viewpoint, the viewpoint that I laid out rather than assuming that, you know, the responses are even responding to a viewpoint that I actually hold. So uh, five reasons. Uh, Number one, uh, sex difference is an intrinsic part of what marriage is. This is for me the most important theological uh, assertion or question. You can frame it as a question, you know, is sex difference any, an intrinsic part of what marriage is? This, this, in terms of the theological debate, this is the most important point of disagreement, even if some people don't realize it. And, and I think that that's unfortunately the case in, in um, some books that I've read, uh, material I've interacted with. Oftentimes people jump into the five or six passages that, you know, seem to prohibit same-sex sexual relationships. And they begin the conversation there. Leviticus 18, 22, or Romans 1, 26, 27, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. You know, they, they go to these prohibition passages and they think that's kind of the primary uh, place where the theological discussion needs to be made. I think that's beginning on the in the on the wrong foot. The question is not, can two people the same sex get married? The main question is, what is marriage? When we, what is the thing we're even ultimately debating? Um, there's Because there's 
different definitions of marriage that people are bringing with them into the conversation. So be, before we even debate whether Leviticus 18.22 is for today or whether it's talking about oppressive, abusive, same-sex relationships or whether it's covering all kinds of sexual relationships, that's an important conversation to have down the road. We need to first wrestle with what is marriage, specifically is sex difference an intrinsic part of what marriage is. And uh, I spend several pages here going into various relevant passages of scripture that I think uh, teach yeah, that, yes, sex difference is part of what marriage is. Uh, the I mean, there's several passages to go to. The two that I typically go to first because it's fairly, I think, relatively easy to, to point out where I'm getting this from is Genesis 2, 23 to 24. And uh, Matthew 19, specifically uh, well, verses 3 to 5, where Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24, and he kind of splices it together with Genesis 1.27. I do, do I want to get into all this? Oh, I do talk about the Greek word or the Hebrew word kenegdo. It's often translated suitable partner, where, where Eve is described as a kenegdo, a suitable partner for Adam in Genesis 2.18 and 2.20. Um, and then I get into Genesis 2.23 that talks about Eve's uh, similarity to Adam, that she is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that she is a common human. She is not an animal, but then also her, the difference that Eve brings to the table that she is. And I, I argue that it's her sex difference that is being highlighted at the end of Genesis 2.23 and that both her equality and sex difference is necessary for the one flesh union that is mentioned in Genesis 2.24. Um, and then I go to Matthew 19 to show that Genesis, uh, quote, Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24, talks about the one flesh union. But then he splices that verse together with Genesis 1.27, which says God created them male and female. Those are categories of biological sex, sex difference. And he sort of bakes sex difference into the meaning of the one flesh union that he cites in Genesis 2.24. And I could hear some of your pushbacks. <laughs> Um, and these are some, there's some really good pushbacks to everything I've, I'm saying here. And I address those in uh, a few different conversations down the road. So some of you are, you know, ripping your hair out saying, yeah, but what about this? What about that? And didn't James Brownson refute that? And I, I address uh, several counter arguments to everything I'm saying there uh, throughout the book. Uh, but in the second chapter, all I'm trying to do is just lay out. Okay, just aside from the arguments, we'll, we'll get to all those. Uh, what is the viewpoint I'm trying to lay out? Okay, so number one, sex difference is an intrinsic part of what marriage is. Number two. Uh, same-sex sexual relationships are always prohibited in the Bible. Uh, I cite five passages where this is the case, Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13, Romans 1.26-27, 1 Corinthians 6.9, and 1 Timothy 1.9-10. Um, and in each case, same-sex sexual relationships are mentioned, and in each case, they are on some level prohibited, discouraged, condemned, whatever language you want to use. Now, several caveats here. First of all, all of these passages are in a context that condemns all kinds of other sins, many of which are committed by straight Christians, uh, many of which were committed by many of you and many of, many of me uh, before lunch today. Okay. It's almost lunchtime. So we cannot come to these passages and say, these are the don't have gay sex passages. No, no. These are the don't sin passages. And by the way, y'all are doing these. This is why y'all need Jesus. Okay. To get my Arkansas accent on. Um, so yeah, so so we can't we can't we need to make sure we come at these passages and read the entire context, which should produce a good level of humility. Okay, um, and also all of these passages, the the interpretation of these passages, the inter well the interpretation and application of these passages is highly disputed. Okay, so I'm simply making an observation right now. Okay, so remember Bible interpretation class, you have observation, interpretation, 
application, kind of three stages of reading the Bible. All I'm doing is I'm lingering on observation right now. Um, these passages do mention same-sex sexual relationships, and they're all mentioned negatively, either prohibited or discouraged. Nobody, deb- nobody debates that. The de- there is a debate about whether these still apply to today, whether they apply to all, ki- all kinds of same-sex relationships, including consensual committed relationships, or whether they're only referring to abusive kind of same-sex sexual relationships. And again, these are arguments that I address later on. I don't do that here in the second chapter. My third reason for holding to the historically Christian view, this isn't a standalone argument. It's more of a response to the pushback that my first two points are simply me as a heterosexual married man reading into the Bible what I want to see. Well, Preston, you have your blinders on. Preston, this is just your interpretation. And these are good. Okay, so here we go. Drawing on some of the things we learned in the first chapter. You know what? That's a good argument. Maybe, maybe I am. Uh, we all should ask that, ourselves that question. Like, am I just as an individual reading into the Bible what I want to see? What's the best way to cross-check ourselves and making sure we don't have just an individual reading of the text? Well, we should go global. Um, we should consult people of different geographical regions, different ethnicities, different denominations. Um, so that leads to our third argument here, which is really, again, not a standalone argument, but kind of a response to maybe push back to the first two arguments. Uh, number three, the multi-ethnic global church affirms the historically Christian view. Now, I'm not saying every single individual outside of the West affirms the global Christian view, but the overwhelming majority of churches, denominations, church leaders for the last 2,000 years, uh, when you go global, go multi-ethnic, uh, look at um, places in the global South where Christianity is flourishing, Asia, Latin America, Africa, this is not much of a debate. And, and again, I'm not affirming everything, every single uh, outside the America context, you know, church believes is accurate because it's outside of America. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying when it comes to some of the basic questions around is sex difference part of what marriage is? Um, does God bless any kind of same-sex sexual relationships? Here's the passages that we're wrestling with. How does the global multi-ethnic church read these passages? When you go outside the West, you have an overwhelming Agreement again, not that there's not some exceptions to that, but overwhelming agreement over the last 2000 years. You know, what I said about Genesis 2 and Matthew 19 and Romans 1 that, yeah, this is how Christians have read these passages. Uh, so, all that to say, I, I actually don't, I kind of, yeah, I don't think it's the best argument to say, well, Preston, this is just your individual interpretation. Actually, it's not. I mean, that, that's why I call it the historically Christian uh, view of marriage. I, and I might come back to why I call it that. In, 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 a, in a second. I know some people push back on my use of that phrase. Uh, number four, this is so important. And this actually becomes foundational for several points I make later on in the book as I'm responding to affirming arguments. Number four, marriage and sex are not essential for human flourishing. Now, what, what I mean by that is they're not essential for an in, every individual human to flourish. As individuals, not every individual needs to get married and have sex to flourish as a human being. Obviously, marriage and sex are kind of important for the, uh, as you know, in general, um, for humanity to reproduce and reproduce and continue to reproduce and so on and so forth. But um, not every individual needs to get married and have sex to be, for, let me use a modern t- term, to be happy, to feel fulfilled, to have a meaningful life. 
Christianity, as I point out, has a rich tradition of, of elevating singleness. In fact, in the early church, sometimes marriage is almost discouraged or seen as the lesser kind of vocation. And, and this comes from, you know, first Corinthians seven, where Paul toys on that perspective, you know, he says, you know, yeah, it's not wrong to be married, but the single night, if you really want to live it up, you know, the single life is where it's at. I'm paraphrasing Paul there. So yeah, the early, the early church took that seriously. So for many centuries, uh, Christianity had a rich tradition of, um, marriage serving a purpose, but singleness being a very high and meaningful, Calling. Unfortunately, in more recent years, especially in the West, well, no, in the sense, this isn't limited to the West. It's pretty much all over the place. But I, I do think that there is a, a much lower view of singleness or a warped view of singleness in the Christian church. So I want to, in this section, really unpack that, hey, marriage and sex are not essential for human flourishing. And, and to be honest, to lay my cards out, I think this is a problem in the conservative evangelical church immersed in purity culture or coming out of purity culture, where I do think marriage and sex were kind of baked into the expected journey for the Christian, that if you're a Christian and you do your devotions and you don't go past first base with your boyfriend, girlfriend, then God will bless you with a spouse, you know, sexual fulfillment. If you just wait until marriage, just wait, just grin and bury and get through the single period. And then boom, God's going to bless you with a spouse. Everything's going to work out um, until it doesn't. And, and, there's just nothing in the New Testament that promises sex and marriage to faithful followers of Jesus. It's just not there. So yeah, it, it, this has been kind of the idolizing of marriage and sex is kind of been a problem in the more con- conservative branches of, of of the church. But I would say yeah, I see the kind of same thing being replicated in more progressive branches of the church or just in society as a whole. Uh, you know, saying if you if you're not like having sex with the person you are wired to have sex with the person you desire the person who resonates with your sexual orientation then you just can't be happy it can't be fulfilled in life so i i and sometimes that's brought into some i would say affirming arguments uh it seems to kind of assume almost like a a neo-purity culture view of sex and marriage and so um i want to lay this out at the beginning to say marriage i don't think marriage and sex are essential for every individual to flourish as a human being so if an argument is kind of assuming that to be true that marriage and sex is essential, then I, I want to um, uh, address that in, in the midst of the argument. Lastly, marriage has a purpose. Marriage has a purpose. And this has been highly, dis- well, that marriage has a purpose has not been disputed throughout church history. Um, which purpose or purposes, purposes they are, that, that's been disputed. Okay. And I, I do wrestle with that. Um, I wrestle with kind of different viewpoints on what is marriage? What is marriage for? How does marriage interact with the storyline of scripture? And is sex difference a necessary part of how marriage interacts with the storyline of scripture? These are the kind of the the deeper theological questions that I want to wrestle with early on. And so, um, and man, this is, this is, this could take a whole book. It has taken a whole book to, to explore lots of books written on the purpose of marriage. Um, so I summarize in a few, few pages here. Um, but I talk about three things that I think scripture does talk about in terms of the purposes of, of marriage, uh, symbolism, procreation, and companionship. And these have gone through, there's been different names given to similar categories here. And I really, I really went, this, this section of the chapter went through several drafts because I was like, ah, how do I best summarize what's been a very kind of complex, um, conversation in church history. So, um, yeah, that would, that was, it wasn't easy to do, but, um, 
symbolism. Throughout scripture, human marriage is a symbol for God's marriage to us. Uh, Yahweh to Israel in the Old Testament, Jesus in the church in the New Testament. Uh, obviously, Ephesians 5 is a huge passage where Paul talks about human marriage, but then says, you know, I'm not even talking about uh, marriage. I'm talking about Christ in the church. I think Catholics and and uh, Orthodox thinkers have done a really good job exploring um or at least they they've, they've taken they spent a lot more theological energy exploring this category. Um, so I don't claim to have it all uh, worked out. Um, but clearly in scripture, uh, human marriage is is interacting with and symbolizing God's love for his people on some level. The, again, the main question is is sex in in those in uh, within this theme, is sex difference necessary for that illustration to work or not? And that's debated, obviously. I do argue briefly that I do think sex difference is, you know, uh, an essential part of that symbolism. Um, and I do maybe address uh, some pushbacks to that later on in the book, but I do, I just, I just kind of want to open up people's categories that these are the kind of things we should be thinking through. How does marriage symbolize God's love for the church and this sex difference in terms of the human marriage, an essential part of that symbolism. Number two, procreation, pretty self-explanatory, although one of the more complicated purposes, um, I do think procreation is a purpose of marriage. In fact, much of what makes males and females different has to do with the respective roles they play in conceiving and reproducing and rearing children. Um, and again, here I'm joined on, I, I do lean a little more Catholic in, in this question of the role that procreation plays in, in marriage. Now there's... <laughs> Many of you, conservative and not conservative, are, are saying, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? What about infertility? What about chosen childlessness? What about marriage and old age? What about, you know, what about uh, health reasons why the mother might not, um, why the wife might not uh, want to have children and so on and so forth? So so I, I do briefly address kind of all, if not most, most, if not all of the pushbacks you might have. But to be clear, so here, here's kind of how I concluded the historically Christian view of marriage, uh, historically Christian marriage will embody and be open to procreation as it tells God's story of his life giving creative power. This doesn't mean that every marriage will result in raising kids. What it does mean is that true marriages will reflect God's designated context and design in which kids should be raised. That's a, that's a, statement jam-packed full of um, some stuff, um, which if and when you read the book, I'll let you kind of interact with the longer discussion I have in chapter two of the book. Uh, the third purpose of marriage is companionship. The classic text for this is the Song of Songs, which hardly at all mentions procreation, but does talk about a man and woman enjoying each other, uh, both sexually and intimately and relationally. And there's a few other passages we, we should bring in here uh, that talk about companionship. I, I do think it's important to point out, though, that marriage is not the only, or even I would argue, and I do argue, it's not even the primary ways in which humans can and should find companionship. So it is true that marriage does provide a context for companionship. I would say it's theologically untrue to say marriage is the primary or main or only way in which humans can and should find companionship. And I do justify that to some extent um, in in the book. So yeah, as we wrestle with the purpose of marriage uh, already, and again, this is going to open up more questions than answers, but I would say the first two purposes of marriage, uh, symbolism and procreation, do necessitate sex difference. Obviously, companionship by itself 
would not necessitate necessitate um, sex difference. Two people of the same sex can have companionship. Um, I would at least you know suggest early on. And again, I'm, I'm not. I'm trying not to get into argument stage at this point, but but just to kind of open up some categories. I, I think someone can find companionship without being married, even though married people do also find companionship in in marriage. So the point is, at the end of this section, any compelling Christian theology of marriage should be able to offer biblically faithful responses to the questions, what is marriage? What is marriage for? Is it simply for companionship? Is it not for procreation? Is that an old school view? Is that something that's that's post Jesus is no longer necessary, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, what is marriage? What is marriage for? Um, and how does sex difference factor into your theological response to those essential questions? So these are the categories I wrestle with in that second section. And yeah, that's that's what I do early on. And then the next, uh, the rest of the book, I'll probably, you know, the first two chapters are, are longer than the rest of the chapters. It probably occupies maybe 20% of the book as a whole. But then I get into fi- uh, 21 conversations uh, that are that represent different you know, arguments against the historically Christian view of marriage, like, is sex difference described or prescribed in Scripture? Wasn't Paul not even talking about consensual same-sex relationships in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6? What about the fact that Jesus never mentioned homosexuality? Or what about Paul? He said it's better to marry than to burn. Doesn't this mean that gay people who are not cut out for celibacy should marry the person they desire? Or what about the fact that some people are born gay? Doesn't this mean it's okay to be married to the same sex? Isn't love love? Or what about the trajectory of women, slaves, and same-sex relationships? We see... You know, things said about women and slavery that kind of progress, they kind of grow and blossom and change throughout the the biblical narrative isn't the same true of same-sex sex relationships and many, many others. Uh, I will pick five. Actually, my Patreon supporters have voted on which five of the 21 they want me to address in the episode, uh, in the next episode that will release in a couple days. So please look forward to that. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I hope you're not too angry, but if you are... That's great. Uh, Come back next time and hopefully I'll wrestle with at least some of the questions you have. Thanks for listening to Theology in Rock. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.